This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock. Ah, Little Rock, Arkansas. This is going to be a big one about civil rights. Mm. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map, we just follow wherever it goes. Cold War, hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckerick. Katie's school is out and Billy is in. Oh, Billy Billy's in and I'm in because I have a lot of learning to do today about something that was so impactful in American history. So in 1957, three years after the Supreme Court declared segregated schools unconstitutional in the Brown versus Board of Education ruling, schools across the American South mainly, including Little Rock, Arkansas, were still segregated by color. I'm not going to say by race, we're all the human race, but uh, during this time, nine students attempt to enter Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they're stopped by police. President Eisenhower decides to uh, protect their right by sending in the troops, and it's a whole hoo-ha. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot leading up to this. There's a lot going on during it, and there's a lot that happens afterward. But Tom, what was your perception of this huge historic incident from where you were in the land of England? <laughs> I have got one of those images in my head, Katie. You know, there's certain photos, particularly from the 50s and 60s, that seem to sum up not just a moment in time, but the backstory behind it. And this is the picture of 15-year-old Elizabeth Eckford, a young black student, walking with her books in her arm into what should be her first day yeah. at Central High School, surrounded by a mob of screaming people. And oh. it's the contrast between how calm she appears to be and how dignified and the looks on the faces of the people around yes. her that makes it such an unforgettable image. I remember that picture. I mean, just you see all of these white people with their faces screwed up mm. in fury and hatred and, you know, just distinct entitlement. And there's this little girl just trying her best to uphold her dignity. And I just, I can't even imagine the bravery, the courage, um, and the trauma. So that's why we're so lucky to have with us today a local historian from Little Rock. He's a Methodist pastor who actually went to Little Rock's um, Central High School where this all happened. Um, and he's met all of the uh, kids who are now, of course, adults, the Little Rock Nine, and he has a huge interest and knowledge of local history. Thanks for joining us, Ryan Davis. Thank you all for having me. Glad to be here. So, Ryan, you're part of the community in Little Rock, Arkansas, and you went to the same high school where this historic showdown happened. By the time you went there, obviously, it was many years later, but the story, as I understand it, of the Little Rock Nine was a central part of the school's history? Was it really talked about and, and indeed celebrated there? Uh, absolutely. I'd say um, as students, we were, and I imagine students still are, inundated with uh, information about those days in 1957. But I'm also afraid that uh, students uh, like myself and others, we, we get kind of a, a very sanitized version of what happened and what led up to, to that day. 
So give us, Ryan, an idea of the backstory that leads to this terrifying day in Arkansas. So I actually think the backstory begins in 1896 with the uh, Plessy decision. Homer Plessy, a very fair-skinned African-American from Louisiana, uh, was protesting his removal from what he thought was an integrated train. And he brought suit basically protesting segregation in the South. The Supreme Court, though, in 1896 decided that, um, you know, as long as things were separate and equal, that this was okay, that we could not, in their eyes, force uh, segregation. The lone dissenter in that case, Justice John Marshall Harlan, argued that forced segregation of races stamped black people with a badge of inferiority. Uh, and this is the same line of argument that would become a decisive factor in the Brown decision. And so several things, especially uh, after World War II, which I kind of mark as the beginning of the modern civil rights movement, several cases brought by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund led up to what happened at Little Rock Central High School. They culminate in the Supreme Court's uh, ruling, which says that um, separate and, and, and equal is, is indeed um, always going to be unequal. And you were talking about the role of World War II. You make the point that uh, our modern civil rights movement stems from that. Now, you have a family history, don't you, with a relative who fought in World War II. Who would that be? Was it your grandfather? It was my grandfather. My grandfather, uh, Reverend Levi Gordon Davis, uh, he who, who fought in World War II and who also had a brother who uh, died in battle in Korea in 1952, um, mm. you know, who comes back to this country and uh, who expects that after uh, fighting against uh, fascism um, and fighting ostensibly at least for democracy uh, in the Pacific, that he would come back to this country with the same rights and privileges that he felt like he earned. There was, in fact, uh, uh, among the NAACP, a double V campaign, a V for victory over the Nazis in Japan, and then a V for victory over segregation and discrimination in this country. So that was a, a general hope of, uh, of the masses of black people. What was the reality for your grandfather when he did return with these expectations of being treated equally? You know, the reality for my grandfather and for a lot of returning black soldiers was pretty much uh, uh, some of the same. You know, these are men born for the most part in the 1920s at the nadir of black existence in this country uh, when lynching was at an all time high. And World War II, uh, the post-World War II era evidenced the fact that uh, things had not changed. My grandfather came back and um, in the early 1950s began as the principal at Wilson Trade School in Mississippi County in Arkansas. He tells the story that his first paycheck uh, from Wilson Trade School was $147 for the month. And he took it to a local bank and was told by a banker that no N-word should ever have this much money. The banker then tore mm. the check up, uh, threw it in his face. And my grandfather decided uh, partially at that point that, you know, he couldn't really stand to live uh, he didn't feel like he could safely live and raise a family in the American South. A second story he tells is that uh, the books from the white schools would come to their school and be dumped onto the lawn uh, from the back of a truck uh, at the beginning of the year. And my grandfather didn't like the fact that, you know, of course, there's dew on the grass. And so the books would get wet. And um, he asked the members of the school board if he could instead come and pick them up. And um, he was told that. Uh, 
he would get the books however they delivered them to him. Uh, and it was at that point that my grandfather decided to take a job in Flint, Michigan, uh, and would not move back to Arkansas until 1980. The Supreme Court declared segregated schools unconstitutional, and yet three years after this decision in Little Rock, schools are still segregated. And I'm wondering, can you give us an idea what it would have been like to be a young black person in this environment? Because you'd have an expectation that, hey, things are different now because the the highest court in the land has has deemed it so. But how frustrating it must have been because there's change on the horizon to give hope, but no real change in daily life. Like, So what was it like to be a kid growing up at that time? For folks in Little Rock, you know, of course, because communities were separate and segregated. I mean, for, for a black child, then they lived in an insulated environment. That bubble was only busted when um, they had to go into public spaces like grocery stores. And Little Rock had already, uh, by 1957, desegregated its bus lines, had already integrated the libraries and other public spaces. And so schools were, for a lot of folks, the last battleground. I imagine there were different ways they could have done this, Ryan, because what we have is we have nine kids of about 15 years of age who are all going to start the school year at the same time. Was there ever an idea that it might be more kids and kids across all years of the school or black kids going into elementary schools? So Virgil Blossom, who was the superintendent um, at the time, decided on what he called a gradual integration. And so the students selected, there were 18 students originally selected for integration at uh, Little Rock Central High School. And by the time Labor Day came around in 1957, only nine of those students were still fully committed. Um, so, you know, at, at the point that the school year was beginning, it was not known uh, for the most part how many uh, black students would be integrating uh, which schools in the Little Rock School District. Okay, so how would those nine students have felt on that September morning when they are going to this previously all white school for the first time, there's 1900 pupils, all the rest of them are white. Do you think any of them had any inkling what was lying in wait? You know, I don't think anybody had an idea until the mobs started gathering outside of the school. Uh, one of the Little Rock Nine, Minnie Jean Brown, uh, now Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, talked about the great sense of expectation um, on that day. And they were coached all throughout uh, the summer and the time leading up to the beginning of the school year. They were told how to dress, how to comport themselves. And so, you know, I just imagine that as young people, this was, uh, you know, a fairly heavy weight um, without the knowledge that there was a mob gathered outside the school. Uh, these students were, first of all, selected on the basis of good grades and great attendance. And so they were uh, seen as exceptional students, students who came from good families. There was uh, the case of another student who was selected, but it was found that her sister um, had had a, a teenage pregnancy and she was then unselected. Um, so these were, were folks who were vetted and deemed worthy. I imagine, like I said, that for them, there was a great weight of um, of responsibility. And this is, again, even before they knew uh, there were mobs gathered outside of the school. And just to rewind a little bit before their confrontation with the mobs, 
What were the kids' expectations, the expectations of these nine children? Did they have any perception that they were actually sort of going into battle? Or did they have just a more sunshiny idea of like, hey, we're going to get great education and, you know, our books aren't going to be all like covered in mold and dew from being thrown on the ground and we're going to have, you know, good educators and good equipment and nice big gyms? Like, what, what were their expectations you know Ernest Green the only one of the Little Rock Nine to have graduated from Little Rock Central High School uh, talked effusively about the fact that there were better uh, lab facilities at Little Rock Central High School and so in their mind they were uh, preparing to enter the center of academic excellence in the state this was still the school known as the most beautiful high school in America you know Little Rock had this reputation again for being a fairly progressive city Now, mind you, this is the same Little Rock that had 30 years earlier saw the uh, lynching of John Carter uh, at Ninth and Broadway, but had since then not earned the reputation that, you know, say parts of Mississippi uh, would earn in this era. So I don't think uh, and it is recorded uh, among the Little Rock Nine that they did not expect the type of resistance that they eventually met. And of course, they're they show up and they see there's a mob And the mob are none too welcoming. But then they also see the National Guard. And I guess if I were a kid, I would think, oh, National Guard with their guns and their helmets, they're here to protect me. But in fact, that wasn't the case, was it? It was not the case. The National Guard was called out by then Governor Orville Faubus, who says that he predicted. Others would say that he exacerbated uh, mob violence. Uh, in the city who called us the National Guard to deny them entry into the school that day. I'm looking at a picture here, uh, Brian, of that mob awaiting the black students. And there's several striking things about this, Katie, when we look at this, and we'll maybe put this on our social media. The first is the school is about as grand a school as I've ever seen. It's got big Doric columns outside. It looks mm-hmm. like a fantastic building. Then there is the anger on the face of what looked like ordinary white citizens. Then, mm-hmm. Katie, it's the signs that are being held mm-hmm. up. Uh, one says, race mixing is communism. Another one says, stop the race mixing, march of the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. It's an image which has both startling things and I don't know, some of these people look like the sort of people you'd be having a beer with or a coffee with, yet in this moment, they're transformed into people who are screaming, shouting, and doing hateful things. Yeah, I mean, they're like neighbors of the kids who were trying to go to school, right? I mean, these are all people in the same community. Is that right, Ryan? Yeah, you know, there is still yet an attempt to to say that these folks were outsiders, that these are people who came from outside of Little Rock into Little Rock and uh, who did these things. But if you look at one of the most infamous pictures, you see Elizabeth Eckford is walking in one direction and there's a young lady screaming directly at her back. Yeah. That probably is one of the most um, um, most widely viewed pictures of, of that day. And uh, she's a student. Uh, her name's Hazel Mastery, actually. And uh, she and Elizabeth Eckford has kind of become a symbol of reconciliation in Little Rock um, since then. But she is a student at Little Rock Central High School. Incredible. She knows the people who are out there. She knows some of the neighbors. And then we know subsequently, of course, that uh, what came out of this is the... Um, the Mother's League and the Mother's League are the mothers of Little Rock Central High School students. 
uh, and this Mother's League is a segregationist organization who, under the cloak of of safety, were against uh, integration. And so, you know, the idea that Little Rock was a more progressive place belies a certain truth about really uh, the entire South in particular and the country in general. I was reading that on her first attempt to get to school because they had to try a couple of times because, of course, the National Guard and the mob made sure that the kids didn't get in that first time. Elizabeth Eckford got spat upon until apparently you could wring out her clothing. I mean, that is just disgusting. That idea that um, I guess, you know, these kids, they're children and they were so othered by these entitled white people who just thought these are objects, we don't want these things mucking up our perfect lives, that they could just, it's beyond disrespect. And I'm just wondering, did any of the nine, as far as you know, did they have second thoughts after that first attempt to go to school? Did they think, you know what, this is not really my bag? This is not really recorded, uh, that, but I can't imagine that they didn't because you know, yeah. at this age, I realized that these are children we're talking about. Um, yeah. And these are children who before this time had fairly insulated lives. I mean, these are, are children of the, the solid black middle class uh, in Little Rock. So, you know, I, I can't imagine that they didn't have some trepidation about returning. Uh, but I do know that uh, it is recorded that they were all very encouraged that the 101st Airborne was dispatched by the president to protect them. Yeah, because uh, th- that was a few weeks later because mm-hmm. President Eisenhower said, forget this whole you know nonsense because the Supreme Court have had their say. America is now desegregated in schools and there was the 101st Airborne uh, federal troops mm-hmm. to make sure the kids got in. So um, running the gauntlet of their racist neighbors to actually enter the school is one thing, but then the kids had to navigate the rest of the school year. Mm -hmm. What kind of abuse were they up against? Oh, one of them described it as like going to war every day. Melba Patillo, uh, now Melba Patillo Beals, a great journalist and writer, described being kicked and beaten, described having uh, acid thrown in her face. Minnie Jean Brown, of course, was expelled from uh, Central High in, in February of 1958, the following semester for uh, retaliating against attacks. Uh, and then not only uh, were they attacked inside of the schools, but uh, their lives were affected outside of it because of the decisions that they they made. Uh, Gloria Ray, now Gloria Ray Carmark, her mother was fired from a job with the state of Arkansas when she refused to remove her daughter uh, from the school. Yeah, you just reminded me, actually, I read that uh, the grandmother of one of the girls had to just pretend to her employer, I guess she was a cleaner in someone's house, mm-hmm. and had to pretend that, um, oh, yeah, that child, I, I wonder who her family is like to, because she didn't want to lose her job right right there were several ways in which the families were terrorized the home of one of the little rock nine was um was firebombed in the years following that and i mean these are things that are not widely reported and you know and i appreciate that we we look at the little rock nine and we see their heroism but um you know i think it's also important that we discuss uh, their trauma and we we discuss it in terms of how the authorities in this city sat on the sidelines and and allowed these things to happen 
Well, I did see a list of other ways that Melba was assaulted. Apparently, she was uh, uh, acid, as he said, was thrown in her eyes. Uh, she was choked. She was hit across the back with a tennis racket so hard she spit up blood. Mm-hmm. She was pelted with snowballs that had rocks in the middle. Um, they used to smear peanut butter with broken glass on it on the mm-hmm. kids' seats. So they'd you know, have that sort of stuck up their skirts. I can't even imagine i can't even imagine that how does the rest of the world react to the goings-on then in little rock because it's huge news across the world there's a very striking image which is on the cover of time magazine which shows a really young fresh-faced paratrooper in his helmet standing in front of the high school and it's the juxtaposition of soldier and high school which is so striking was there condemnation around the world Absolutely. It becomes one of the one of the international incidents that I think uh, kind of sparks the major part of the modern civil rights movement. The others being, of course, the Brown decision. And then I would add the uh, lynching of Emmett Till. But it becomes the international incident. There's a, a German magazine, a West German magazine that uh, juxtaposes that picture of the National Guard with, um, you know, the division in Berlin. Ah. And, yeah. And I mean, you know, as, as a country, as the world is becoming more internationalist, I mean, there is the nascent uh, United Nations. Uh, there are countries all over the world, uh, beginning in Indochina, that are coming uh, from under colonial, under the colonial boot, if you will. And it is indeed a new world. And, and the United States wants to represent itself as the standard bearer of freedom and democracy. And so this is, uh, you know, damaging. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower realizes this. This is damaging to uh, the reputation of America. So after this first year of the segregated school in Little Rock, there comes the last year where Governor Faubus does his sneaky little workaround, which is to close all public schools and turn them into private schools, and uh, thereby sidestepping the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, Ryan? Orville Faubus makes uh, a speech in 1958 where he he says that it's with the heavy heart that he found it necessary to, to sign the bills of the extraordinary session of the General Assembly of the state of Arkansas to close the high schools in the city of Little Rock. And he says that he does it because he does not want to, to surrender the rights of Arkansas citizens to federal autocracy. Again, this, um, you know, states rights argument that is, you know, all over the South at this point. And the citizens are willing to to, to give up their local schools because uh, there are established schools for, for white students. Black students, on the other hand, uh, either enter the workforce or through some of the historically black colleges in the state are allowed to do some correspondence courses. Um, and so it, it ends up having obviously a more negative effect on, on the folks who don't have access to, to any schooling. And so it is indeed a lost year for the vast majority of black students across the city of Little Rock. And also it boomerangs on the nine, the Little Rock nine, because they're blamed by other black kids and black mm-hmm. families for mm-hmm. for all the schools being shut. So it's a, it's a terrible situation where they they're not only being pummeled and tortured by the white populace, but also by their colleagues and friends and family. Katie, I need a couple of minutes to process all that stuff. Shall we have some quick adverts? Hello there. This is my friend Joe. Hi. 
Now, Joe plays rugby for England. Yeah, what's your point? Come on. Well, Joe presents a podcast, and it's my firm belief that you should listen to it. Very interesting. And here's why. Because it's not actually a rugby podcast, because, well, let's face it, there's billions of them already. No, 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 no. It's about you, the listener, and the jobs you do. If you're a teacher, an astronaut, a tree surgeon, or a chef, then we've got loads of questions for you. The Joe Marler Show. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. That's a great line. That's a, that is a very good line from you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. You want to find it? Search for The Joe Marler Show in your podcast app. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. Now, you mentioned earlier, Ryan, that Ernest Green was the only one of the nine who graduated from Central High School. Uh, and I can understand why uh, somebody would sort of lose their appetite for putting themselves through that every single day. But uh, what happened to the to the other kids out of the nine, the other eight? Did they just end up transferring? Did they move out of state? What what did they do? They all finished high school out of state. Um, oh. And for the most part in northern and eastern states uh, because of their, their well, I would say because of their bravery uh, and rightfully so they they yeah. had access to a network of, of supporters who, who who wanted to see them succeed black and white supporters. And so, you know, Minnie Jean Brown, for instance, uh, spent some time living with uh, the famous black psychologist Kenneth and Mamie Clark. Those folks who were at the center of, uh, of of the Brown decision, they all were able to finish high school either by correspondence or uh, in other states. And did they have to actually leave the state for their own safety? You know, I, I would, it, it, and, and, I, and I hope not to project in the, in this case, but I would say, considering the story, that not only their own safety but their own sanity. Yeah. Uh, you know, Melba Patillo and Elizabeth Eckford in particular uh, talk in, in, in several of them are published books about their experience. They talk quite a bit about the effects on their psyche. Um, yeah. You know, uh, again, being alienated from their own communities and being uh, widely hated, of course, being, you know, symbols of or targets rather of hatred uh, in the wider community in Little Rock. And as time passes, Ryan, there is a rehabilitation and a reckoning of what the Little Rock Nine achieved mm-hmm. to the point where Bill Clinton, when he is president, obviously he's been governor of Arkansas earlier in his political career. He gives all nine of them the Congressional Gold Medal. And there's a very powerful image of the nine standing on the steps again, this time with the president behind them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I graduated from Little Rock Central High School in 1997. And so in... Um, the fall of that year, when I, I entered college, one of my good friends, Fatima McKendra, who was the first black woman elected student body president, um, introduced uh, then President Bill Clinton for that 40th anniversary uh, commemoration of the crisis at Little Rock Central High School. It was the first event that all of the Little Rock Nine uh, returned to. It was the first event that got, you know, wide media attention. I remember uh, being in Lake Forest, Illinois, watching it on CNN. And so it took that many decades for uh, for there to be that kind of wide recognition of their efforts. So 
This might sound a little flippant, but I'm wondering, was there ever a class reunion of the Little Rock Nine and their schoolmate tormentors? Was there ever a time or a place where they uh, did a reckoning between them and, and readdressed the past? You know, uh, Ernest Green, the only the only member of the Little Rock Nine to have graduated from Little Rock Central High School, uh, says that he's never attended a class reunion. And I'll suspect that some of it has to do with the very vocal resentment of some of the members of the class of 1958, uh, some of mm. whom have written in uh, newspaper editorials that they just wanted to go to school that year. And uh, some of them who have bemoaned uh, the fact that they were not allowed a normal school year, you know, uh, oddly. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, that that is an issue. But some a couple of other things were happening at the same time. <laughs> Just a few. Yeah. <laughs> even today, even today, I, I mean, as recently as uh, 2017, excuse me, 2007, rather. And I was there for the uh, 50th commemoration of the Little Rock Central High School crisis. And there was uh, an editorial from a member of the class of 1958 who who said in part that, oh, you know, we're glad this happened. Uh, What a great thing to celebrate. But not all of us participated in, you know, it was kind of um, um, not all white people, not all white. people. It was one of those kinds of statements, you know. Yeah. Ryan, what would you say the legacy of the Little Rock Nine is in today's America? You know, I think they join um, a pantheon, if I can use a lofty word here, of folks, of common people who made very uncommon decisions. You know, I want to lift up a person, if I might, uh, a lady, Sue Sue Cowan Williams. And Sue Cowan Williams was a, um, a teacher in the Little Rock School District, who in 1942 filed a suit against the Little Rock School Board to equalize the salaries between black and white teachers. Sue Calvin Williams was still teaching at Dunbar uh, High School when the Little Rock Nine came about. And so I think they stand on the shoulders of folks like Sue Calvin Williams. Um, They stand on the shoulders of folks like L.C. and Daisy Lee Gatson Bates, um, who who through the state chapter of the NAACP led these efforts. And these are folks who really believed in the mandate of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, who felt that America was a country of, of laws and who thus felt that they had every right in the world to attend a better school. And their legacy is partly that. And then their legacy, of course, is one of extreme bravery. Because, you know, these are young people, these are children who confronted these great and unexpected odds and who came out, not necessarily unscathed, but who came out and eventually uh, told their story. And they continue to share their story uh, in schools and in libraries and in auditoriums all over the world. And, you know, for that, I appreciate them. So, Ryan, you know the Little Rock Nine. You've met all of them. Is that right? I have. How do they feel about their place in history? Um, hmm. Well, I'll say this much. I appreciate their insistence that the full history be told. There's always an attempt to sanitize this portion of American history in general. And they don't allow uh, folks to sanitize their history. They say very forthrightly, I don't remember. I've heard uh, uh, Gloria Ray Carmark say, I don't remember 
any of those white students who say that they were really friend friendly to us. I don't remember them. Right. You know, mm. and so they're very dutiful in their honesty. I can say that much for sure. Right. You know, and they know that there's no reconciliation without reparation, you know. And I wonder what that reparation would be. I mean, how would you go about, you know, how would the state or how would Little Rock go about making reparations in this instance? I think as we, we, we look uh, currently, I mean, we, we've talked for probably the past decade about the resegregation uh, of schools in, in, in America in general and in Little Rock in particular mm. and how, how some particular decisions have exacerbated that. You know, folks look at Little Rock Central High School today and you hear so often that Little Rock Central High School operates as two separate schools. Oh. Uh, it's a school with a great national reputation, a uh, great academic reputation. Uh, I'm proud of that for sure. But there are folks who would say that uh, there is a separate school for uh, white students, which is exceptional, which is well equipped. Um, and then there's a separate school for black and Hispanic students, which is uh, the opposite of that. And so I think that if we we really want to be thoughtful about what happened in 1957, what happened with and to uh, the members of the Little Rock Nine, that uh, we would be serious about repairing these things, you know. I'm seeing a chilling resurgence of this kind of ignorance. And I wonder what you can say about this, Ryan, today with uh, what's going on, particularly in the states of the South with book banning, mm -hmm. uh, the excitement over the so-called teaching of critical race theory, which actually is not something that is taught in grade schools, but um, and certainly the anxiety uh, amongst certain uh, sectors of white folks about the 1619 project that the New York Times writer Nicole Hannah-Jones started to highlight the real beginnings of slavery in America. It seems that there's almost a renewed sensitivity about uh, the stain on America's history. And it seems like there's a certain uh, desire to whitewash, if you will, what's going on. And it, it seems like it's a throwback to the battle days. What do you think? Oh, a throwback for sure. I mean, this is old style alarmism. You know, folks were told if we integrated this, if we integrated the schools that we would see uh, all types of uh, what they call miscegenation and race mixing and uh, that we would see the rise of socialism and communism. I hear the same things today. Yeah. Uh, I hear uh, those who comment against critical race theory, folks who have not evidenced uh, any knowledge of what critical race theory is. And right. they connect it to socialism, uh, to communism. And so it is, um, I was going to say oddly, but uh, I guess it's not that odd. It's, it's, it's uh, quite patently American. It has a, it has a, such a chilling effect. And, uh, you know, I, I'll say that I'm proud that we've yet to see this um, in the city of Little Rock, but we certainly have seen it in other parts of the state of Arkansas. Ryan, thank you so much for bringing your knowledge and your stories and your insight to the program today. I wonder if you could maybe finish for us by doing us a roll call of the Little Rock Nine. Oh yeah, absolutely. Ernest Green, Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Delma Mothershed, Melba Patillo, Gloria Ray, Terrence Roberts, Jefferson Thomas, and Carlotta Walls. Heroes all. Thank you so much, Ryan Davis. Thank you. <laughs>
Ryan Davis is somebody who was destined to be a storyteller because that voice, that rumbling, deep voice just kept me captivated. But my God, the details of the Little Rock Nine and what they went through was just grim. Yeah, it was. And as often with this show, Casey, I find myself wondering how you and I might have coped in that situation if you'd been Elizabeth Eckford walking that gauntlet of hate on that day. Are you still walking? Are you turning around? Are you crying? Um, I'm definitely crying. I mean, I don't even know if I would have had the right stuff. And of course, I'm thinking as a little white kid in the crowd, would I have the gumption to stand up against? That's the thing, isn't it? If your friend, if your little mate who you've been friends with all your way through school, they're screaming stuff. Are you brave enough to look at them and go, oi, what on earth are you doing? I mean, of course, I'd like to think that I would be, but it's just so... Awful. I mean, all I can offer you is that uh, in middle school, the mean boy knocked a bunch of books out of the nerd boy's arms as uh, they were walking down the hallway. Names, please, of the two boys. I don't know the names, (laughs) but I... I put on my invisible cape and I swooped in and while the mean bully was still laughing and looking over his shoulder at the the poor beleaguered nerd kid, I knocked his books out of his arms. Get a load of that, muscle boy. He didn't even see me coming. So I have a little bit of the Avenger in me. So I like to think that I would have done something a little less than slinking off into the back corners of the school. Katie, next week we go to a very different place. Our lyric courtesy of Sir William of Joel is Pasternak. Pasternak. Now, I was a little hazy on who this Pasternak was, and it turns out poet, Russian poet, but also what's his big blockbuster? Dr. Zhivago. Dr. Z. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yes, so am I, Katie. And in the meantime, if you'd need another podcast, listen to Katie, why don't you tell Uh, us about your other podcast.com? Yeah, Yeah, I'm cheating on you, Tom. It is called Dot Com, and it's the only podcast documentary series about the people of the internet. And series two is out now. Series one, if you may recall, was all about Wikipedia. And series two is about the social media website Reddit. And I'll tell you what, Tom, it's a lot darker and more complex than that whole Wikipedia scene. So go and listen. It's called .com. That's D-O-T-C-O-M. And subscribe. Katie, we have also had some interest from our listeners <laughs> about the damp cloth utopia oh, tea towel, as so mentioned happy. in previous episodes. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Do you remember yeah. that lovely email we got from James Thompson? Yeah. Where all his gifts last Christmas were episodes of the show. They, they were all themed by We Didn't Start the Fire Topics, and that was very flattering. That was his wife uh, basically making a gesture towards James's favourite podcast. Yeah, and I think James is very keen on a tea towel, although he does say it wasn't intended to be a last-minute present idea for Mrs. Thompson's Valentine's Day. Uh, yeah, he's just covering his ass. We know it will be, James. That's fine. That's fine, but you could cover your ass literally with this damp cloth utopia tea towel and it would be right in there thematically and physically crowd network a place where you belong
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.